Let's pray. God, you're so good. We believe this. We experience this day by day. Your goodness, your grace, and your mercy to us, the undeserving. We thank you this morning. And we worship you. Regardless of our circumstances, regardless of the battles, regardless of the the trials and the tests, we declare, we believe you are so good. Would you continue your grace to us, your goodness to us, as we hear from your word this morning? And God, would you glorify yourself, glorify your son Jesus, as we worship you with our minds, as we attend to your word. If there's anyone here today who does not know Jesus, God, in your goodness, would you save them? Would you rescue them? Holy Spirit, would you do a work in our hearts where you're taking your truth and applying it to our hearts that we leave different here this morning? And I ask that in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Thank God for the worship team this morning and leading us in worship. What a great time together. My name is Pastor Lentrell, and I lead here adult ministry and uh, discipleship, and it is my privilege to bring you the word this morning. We're in a series of Genesis entitled In the Beginning, and so you can turn your Bibles there, Genesis chapter 28. And before we get into the text, I want to share with you a quote from St. Augustine that has really challenged me, and I want to use it as an intro to this message. St. Augustine is quoted by saying this, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. See that? Catch that? God, you made us for yourself. To love you, to worship you, to glorify you, to walk with you. That's why you made us. And our hearts are restless until we rest in you. That challenges me. Maybe it challenges some of you too, right? It's a challenge because, especially personally, because I know what it feels like to be restless. I know what it feels like to have no peace, principally because in that time or in those times, I am seeking satisfaction and pursuing satisfaction in something that will never satisfy me. I know what it feels like to be empty, pursuing vain things. And so that is a challenge for me. And I know I'm not alone this morning. I know that there are are people here, brothers and sisters here, who have felt this way. You have been or are restless. You know what it means to feel empty. You know the emptiness that comes from seeking satisfaction in that which will never truly satisfy you longing, desiring something, many things that will never truly satisfy your soul. 
And if there's any question to what I mean by longing and satisfaction, I just want to clear that up up front. When I'm saying longing and satisfaction, the desires of our heart, it is our heart saying, I want that. It's our heart saying, I need that. It's our heart saying, if I just get that, you fill in the blank. If I just get that, I'll be happy. If I just get that, I'll be satisfied. If I just have that, everything will be good. As we continue our study in Genesis this morning, we'll be looking at the story of Jacob's wives. Yes, I I meant that, Jacob's wives. The story of Rachel and Leah. And while there are many lessons in this narrative, and if I'm to be honest, it was hard to kind of narrow it down and, and just focus in on one theme of this text. So there's many things that could be said. What I want to focus in on this morning is how this story illustrates the human heart and its longings and desires. I think in a very powerful way, this text illustrates the human heart is full of desires and longings, and often we seek for satisfaction in the wrong places. I think we're going to see that clearly in the text this morning. And I'm hoping that we will not only see how the human heart functions and how it's always longing and desiring, I hope that we will learn where does true satisfaction come from. If our hearts are craving, it has desires, and we were even made like this with desires and longings, where do we find true satisfaction for them? So if you have your Bibles, look with me at Genesis We'll start in chapter 28. And what I want to do is kind of set the story before you, this narrative before you. And so we'll fly over the narrative, um, 30,000 foot view, and then we'll focus in on some of these, this lesson of longings and desires. Genesis 28, verse 1 and 2 is so important for the whole narrative. Look there with me. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him, and directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise and go to Param Aram, to the house of Bethel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother brother. Stop there. So I want to emphasize, we know, and many of us, even if you grew up in going to Sunday school, the story of of uh, Jacob and Rachel and Leah. We know what has just happened between Jacob and his brother Esau, how Jacob stole his brother birthright and blessing, and how Esau wants to kill Jacob. And when Rebekah finds out about that, her plan is to send Jacob away. And somehow she has talked to Isaac about this fact of Jacob needing a wife. And so Jacob is given very specific instructions as his parents send him off. He says, go find our kinsmen, Laban, and marry one of his daughters. The text continues by Isaac giving the blessing and repronouncing the blessing upon Jacob. And then Jacob traveling. Somewhat that this travel or this journey could have been somewhat of 500 miles And so he took a long journey, 
And on his way there, he has a vision from God. God comes to Jacob. Look later in chapter 28 at verse 13 and following. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall be, and all the families of the earth be blessed. Notice verse 15. This is so important. God tells Jacob, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. Can you imagine that? Jacob having this vision from God Almighty. God appears to him and confirms his promise, his covenant, and he assures Jacob that he is with him. Jacob continues his journey. We move into chapter 29, and he comes to a well and shepherds there. And he asks the shepherd, hey, do you know Laban? And by the providence of God, imagine traveling 500 miles and ending up at some random well and looking for his family. He asks the shepherds, do you know Laban? And they say, yeah, we know him. He says, is it well with him? They say, yeah, everything's good with him. Matter of fact, here comes his daughter right now, Rachel. And so Jacob meets Rachel. She's coming forward, and she has sheep, and she's a shepherdess. He tells the shepherds, open the well, and let's water the flock. It seems as if he wants to get those guys out of there. They say, we don't open the well right now. We have to wait, and we open it at a specific time. Jacob, in supernatural strength, rolls the stone away from the well, waters Rachel's flock, and then embraces her, kisses her. Now, while I don't think this is romantic here, this is somewhat of a tradition here, we can see Jacob trying to make much of himself here. You just see the stone I rolled away, and hey, I'm your kinsman. Rachel runs off and gets her father, and they are happy, and Laban says, stay with me, remain with me. You are my kinsman. Later in chapter 29, Laban comes to Jacob, and he says, even though you're my kinsman, you shouldn't work for me for nothing. Name your price, and I will give it to you. What should be your wages? And Jacob, quickly, with his eyes wide open, addresses his uncle and says, I will work seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. He's in love, the text says. Although it was only a month, he's in love, the text says. And he's willing to work seven years for Rachel. Just kind of doing some calculation here. This was probably four times a typical bridal price that he offers. He said, I'll give four times as much as what other, another would possibly pay for your daughter. The text also tells us that there was another sister, Leah. And it makes a contrast between Rachel and Leah by saying, Rachel... It's beautiful. And Leah had weak eyes. 
Now, the Bible is gracious, and I think this is the Bible gracious way of saying that Leah was ugly. <laughs> she had weak eyes, the Bible says, but Rachel was beautiful. And so we know the story Jacob worked seven years. He toils, he works, but for him, it felt like just a day. At the time for him to receive his bride, he goes to Laban and he says, give me my wife. Look at verse 21 of chapter 29. Notice, notice how Jacob is demanding his wife. And Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. And so Laban throws together a party. There's festivities. There's celebration. And at the evening, when the time, the special time to come, where the bride and the groom will be united, Laban switches the daughters and puts Leah in the tent of Jacob. Jacob engages with with Leah, and in the morning he wakes up. And notice what the text says in verse 25. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. He immediately goes to Laban and says, what have you done to me? Did I not work for Rachel? Why have you deceived me? Us knowing, the text says, well, Jacob has received a little bit of his own medicine. Laban responds by saying, okay, it's the custom here that we don't give the, the youngest first. But work for me another seven years and I'll give you Rachel as well. Jacob, broken, frustrated, agrees to another seven years of work to marry Rachel. And now he has two wives. The final scene that I want to just put before you is the fact that now with two wives, there then is Jacob's children. God opens the womb of Leah. Look at verse 31 of chapter 29. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. And so she would have a number of sons. And then Rachel, who was not able to have children, she was barren. She presents her servant to Jacob for the sake of having children on her behalf. She has two sons. When Leah stopped having children, she gives her servant to Jacob, and she has two sons through Jacob on the behalf of Leah. Leah has more sons. Rachel eventually has a son of her own, and her second son was actually given on her deathbed. She died in giving birth to her last son. And so they get into this baby war, and yet God providentially is making the nation of Israel through them. And so that's the story for the most part. I know that there's much more that could be said about the story, but this is the text, and this is the story that we have before us. And what I want to show you now are four pictures of unsatisfying pursuits. I think this is absolutely clear in the text that these four characters are longing and desiring for something. What is it? First, Laban is desiring wealth. Laban is desiring wealth. There's a very interesting verse in chapter 30, verse 30, where Jacob acknowledges that Laban didn't have much when he came to him. Look there, 30, verse 30. For you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly. 
and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turn. And so before Jacob came to Laban, Laban didn't have much. And I'm sure that when, Jake, when Laban knew who Jacob was, he could remember that how his sister was brought for a wife for Isaac and the jewels and the riches that were given to Laban and his family on behalf of his sister. So when Laban looks at Jacob in this opportunity, he sees dollar signs. He sees profit. He sees prosperity. And it is this desire for wealth and longing that is compelling him to use his daughters in this corrupted way. He's swapping daughters. He's using them for the sake of prosperity. And we know what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. So Laban is desiring wealth and prosperity. Second, Jacob is desiring Rachel. That's clear in the text. Jacob desires and loves and wants to be with Rachel. Again, he offered seven years to work for her. And in verse 21, you can see how blatant and how Uh, outrageous is his passion. He literally tells her father, hey, give me my wife. I want to be with her. And we know what that be means, right? He is desiring Rachel. But Rachel is also a picture of someone with great desires and longings. Look at chapter 30, verse 1. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children... She envied her sister and said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. You see that? Rachel longed to have children. Now, in and of itself, is that a wrong desire? No. But but look at to the extent that this desire, that this longing is working in her heart. She feels as if she doesn't get a child, she will die. Her life, she says, is contingent upon having a child. You see that? Rachel is desiring a child. She's desiring children. And lastly, I want to acknowledge in the text, Leah is desiring the love of her husband, Jacob. And this is very well seen. This is a unique picture here when you look at how Leah names her children. Look back at chapter 29, verses 31 and following. It says, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her room, but Rachel was barren, and Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. That's so important for us. Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked on my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Verse 33, she conceived again and bore a son and and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Verse 34, and again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. You see that? Stop there. You see that? She's longing for the affection and the love of her husband. Now, again, in and of itself, 
a wife desiring that her husband loves her? Is that a wrong thing? No, of course not. But see how she's being overcome by her desires. It's expressed in her son's name. She's called Reuben in Hebrew. It's very similar to C's. So she names Reuben C, and she's expressing that she will be seen. I'm seen by God. Maybe I'll be seen by my husband. She calls Simeon heard. I'm heard by God. Maybe I'll be heard by my husband. Levi, attached. His name in the Hebrew sounds very close to the word attached. Maybe now my husband will be attached to me. The next son, something unique happens. And again, and she conceived again, verse 35, and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Something has happened in Leah's heart. In, in, the, in light of Judah, there's nothing about Jacob here. She says, this time I will praise the Lord. So I would like to believe that she has come to understand that Jacob will never satisfy her heart, that Jacob will never satisfy her desires, and that only God can. I would love to believe that. And it seems like that when you see how she names Judah, that God communicates something unique to her about this child. We know in whom the Messiah would come through the tribe of Judah. And so we hope, you can almost have a, a great anticipation that Leah has learned her lesson. But as she goes on and continues to have children, it becomes that is not the case. When she has Issachar, she entitles him Wages. This is the son that I got from Wages. She gave the mandrakes of her oldest son Reuben to her sister and purchased Jacob for a night. I know that sounds crazy, right? And she has a son through that, and she names him Wages. And the last son that God enabled her to have was the son Zebulun. And she names him Honor. Maybe then my husband will honor me. So here it is at the end of her childbearing, and she's still seeking Jacob's affection and love. She wanted to win Jacob over, but failed to do so. So I hope you see this morning, brothers and sisters, this text, this passage is full of longings and desires. It illustrates how our longings and desires, how we have them, and yet how we often try to pursue them and satisfy them with that which will never satisfy them. I have a picture here of a, a shape sorter. And I thought it was really unique to try to think through how often we try to fill our longings and desires with the wrong things. Trying to put the circle in the square, it doesn't work. And we can get frustrated if we're trying to force something in, into ourselves or satisfy us that can never do so. And so I want to ask you this morning... What are you trying to satisfy yourself with? Or who are you trying to satisfy yourself with? How are you seeking satisfaction for your soul? Is it through love or marriage? Maybe there's some young people here this morning. You're thinking, as soon as I get married, I'll be happy. 
and all of my heart will be satisfied. Maybe it's children. Maybe you haven't been able to conceive and you think, soon as I have a child, I will be satisfied. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's a career. Maybe it's retirement. You say, oh, be careful now, Lentrell. As soon as I retire, everything will be fine. Everything will be good. What are you longing for? What are you saying? As soon as I get that, I will be satisfied. The true question is, how does the gospel minister to people who are empty and are longing to satisfy themselves with that which will never satisfy? How does the gospel speak to us in our longings and our desires? Well, I'm glad you asked. The gospel says only Jesus can satisfy us. Only Jesus can satisfy. Quickly, I want you to think about, you don't have to turn there, but think about John chapter 4 and the woman at the well. Jesus meets this woman from Samaria who was empty, who was broken, who was longing for satisfaction. She had five husbands. And the man that she was with at that time was not her husband. She was longing and seeking satisfaction. And the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, meets her at the well, and he tells her this. John chapter 4, verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked me. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. This living water that Jesus is offering this woman is what we need. Amen? This living water is Christ himself. This living water is satisfaction that only comes from knowing and walking with Jesus. Jesus said in John chapter 6 verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You catch that? Jesus is offering us the greatest satisfaction that we could ever have. And where is it? In him. In him. The greatest satisfaction is in Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is the one who saves us. Jesus is the one who made us. Jesus is the one who redeems us. He gives us life and peace and is wrapped up in himself. How can I know if I'm finding satisfaction in Jesus? How can I know if I'm resting in him? Really quickly, my time is going quickly. Let me give you four ways to distinguish if you're finding satisfaction in Jesus I would love for every one of you to note these and meditate on them later in the afternoon. How can I know if I'm finding satisfaction in Jesus? And what I want to do as I give you these four, these four truths about satisfaction in Christ, these four measurements about satisfaction in Christ, is I want you to know that I'm making direct uh, contrast to what I see in the characters of Rachel, Leah, and Jacob, and Laban, what I see in their unsatisfaction, and I'm comparing that to what we find in Christ. Are you with me? So I'm comparing unsatisfaction to true satisfaction in Christ. Number one, 
in Christ, there's not disappointment, but there's peace and contentment. When we pursue that which will never satisfy us, there will be disappointment. But if we are resting in Christ, if we are pressing into Christ, there will be peace and contentment. Peace and contentment. Number two, if we are pursuing that which will never satisfy us, oftentimes those become idols in enslavement. And so instead of enslavement and idolatry, there is freedom. There is freedom in Christ. How do I know if I'm having true satisfaction in Christ? Are you free or are you in bondage to your desires and your passions? There is freedom. Number three, there is worship. Number two, there is enslavement, and enslavement then becomes this rivalry to God. When I look at how these characters are pursuing what they want, I wonder and I have to ask the question, where is their pursuit of God? Their idols and desires has become, their desires have become idols and rivalries to God. And so in contrast, if you are finding satisfaction in Christ, if you have peace in Christ, if you are resting in Christ, there will be worship. Lastly, there would be this assurance of acceptance. Leah never, from my understanding, looking at this text, Leah never had the acceptance and assurance of her husband's love that she desired. But when you come to Christ, you know, you are told, you are, you are shown that you are loved and accepted. There is acceptance and assurance. And so as I invite the worship team back up, I want to end by asking you this question. Is Christ enough? Is Christ enough? The psalmist said, Whom have I in heaven but you? The earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Satisfaction in Christ is available for us. Satisfaction for our souls is in Christ alone. The question is then simply, is Christ enough? Is Christ enough? Let us pray. Father God, thank you for your word this morning. We know that our hearts, they are longing and desiring ultimately for you, God. We know that nothing in this world would satisfy us but you, God. So I pray for your people. Pray for myself. Father, help us to find satisfaction in Christ alone. He is enough. He is better. He is sufficient. We embrace that today. Be our all, Jesus. We ask in your name. Amen.